Well, church family, today as uh, we turn our attention to God's Word, I just have a sense of holy anticipation. Um, This is a time of great pain and turmoil and change, struggle and opportunity in the world. And I feel like God wants to speak to us today. I think He wants to speak to us a healing word, but also a deeply transforming word. As I've been meditating on our text of Scripture this week, God has been talking to me. And I just long, I long deeply for God to speak to your heart today and to do something special in our community. So please join me in in just saying a quick word of prayer, and then we're going to dive into the Scriptures. Our Father, I just want to pause and be still and say you are good. We love you and we need you. Would you speak to us and transform us by your grace right now? Oh Lord, I pray that my words would be guided and empowered by your Holy Spirit. And I pray that everyone who watches this video, Lord, that you would just give everyone a heart that's open to you. By your grace, um, you would heal our hearts and transform us in this time. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my title for for today's study is Transformed by the Gospel. Transformed by the Gospel. And we're going to look at the last four verses of Philippians chapter 1. Let me remind you of the setting. Paul is in prison. Pastor Chauncey preached to us about this last week that um, Paul, um, he's in chains, perhaps under house arrest in Rome, and He doesn't know if he's going to be executed. They might release him, but they might kill him. And he's writing to some of his dear friends whom he led to Christ. He's like their spiritual father as well as their friend. And these might be his last words to them. He might get out, but he's seriously concerned that he might die. If he dies, he says, I'm going to be with Christ, which is better by far. But he says, I'm concerned for you, my friends. And so in these verses... Um, he's saying to them, effectively, here's my desire for you. If I don't get to talk to you again, here's the longing of my heart for you, beloved friends. And the the gist of what he's saying, the big idea, is here in the first uh, part of Philippians 1, verse 27. I'm going to put the whole passage on the screen, but right now, I'm just going to read the first few words. Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of, of the gospel of Christ. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's my prayer for me and for you today. Oh God, let our manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now we got to ask, what does that mean? Well, first, let's just talk about the gospel of Christ. What is that? We've been defining the gospel every week for the last few weeks, but I feel like we can't talk about the gospel too much, so let's just do it again. The word gospel means good news, and it's talking about the specific good news that God is working in the world. God has acted through Jesus, and God is acting in the world to save the world, and God's salvation is a gift. It's a free gift. We don't have to earn God's love. He loves us uh, by pure grace. He just loves us, and He's inviting us to Himself. To understand this gift, we have to tell the story about Jesus, uh, the, the Son of God through whom God the Father created all things, 
um, came to earth. He entered into human history. He walked around this broken world as one of us. And while he was walking uh, on the earth, he demonstrated a life of perfect love, wisdom, compassion, and justice. He cared for the hurting. He fed the hungry. He healed the sick. He proclaimed the word of God. Uh, he, he just showed us what it means to be truly human. And then he died on the cross for us. In his death, Jesus bore our sin, our guilt, our shame, so that we wouldn't have to bear it. Jesus took what we deserved because we've all participated in the world's evil. He wanted us to be forgiven, so he died for us. Then he rose from the grave. And the resurrection of Jesus was the first movement in God's plan to resurrect everything, to resurrect you, to resurrect me, to resurrect all of creation. He's going to make all things new. After Jesus rose from the grave, He ascended to the right hand of His Father in heaven. He sat down on a throne. And it's so glorious to know that right now, even when the world is filled with chaos and pain, Jesus is on the throne. He's still at work. And He promises that in His time, He will come back. When Jesus comes back, He is going to set everything right and make everything new. Friends, as we look at racial injustice in the world today, as we look at a pandemic in the world today, as we look at political and economic chaos in the world today, as we look at the emotional turmoil of our own hearts today, I want you to hear Jesus died for your sins. He rose again. When He comes back, He will heal every wound. He will set everything right. Jesus will vindicate innocent sufferers. Jesus will hold the wicked accountable. Jesus will wipe away tears from every eye. All trauma will be healed. All broken relationships will be set right by Jesus. He's coming back. And everybody who trusts in Him, by grace, is forgiven of our sins and we're brought into the family of God. It's a gift. We don't have to earn it. All we've got to do is receive the gift by trusting in Jesus. That's the gospel. That's the good news. So when Paul says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, what he's saying uh, is, my beloved friends, my sisters and brothers in Philippi, I don't know if I'll see you, but I want you to believe the good news about Jesus so deeply that it goes into your heart and transforms you so that your lifestyle starts reflecting the truth about Jesus. Even though you're still going to have all kinds of problems and brokenness that you're working through, there's going to be a new humility and love and wisdom and power in your heart and life so that when people see you, it's not so much that they're impressed by you, but they see something different at work in you. The life of Christ is being lived through you. That's what this means. Now, if we want to go deeper into this, I have to do something that I don't normally do on Sunday mornings, which is talk to you a little bit about uh, the original Greek language of the New Testament. So I'm going to put our key verse on the screen again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, I want you to uh, give me your attention for just a second. Let's think about these five words, let your manner of life. Those five English words are translating one Greek word, which um, is difficult to translate into English. The root concept of this Greek verb is citizenship. Okay? Um, and a more literal translation of the verb would be live as citizens. Live as citizens. 
That's a big deal in Philippians. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, Paul is going to say, Our citizenship is from is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. Now, I told you a few weeks ago when we were introducing the book of Philippians that Paul is writing to his friends in the city of Philippi. And Philippi is a Roman colony out on the frontier of the Roman Empire. A lot of the people in Philippi were retired Roman soldiers who were very proud of the fact that they were citizens of Rome. And so they were carriers of the culture of Rome. They felt like we're representing something noble and honorable out here on the frontiers of civilization. We're carrying the culture of Rome with us and extending Rome. Now, Paul is effectively saying, you have a citizenship which is better and deeper and more important than your Roman citizenship. It's in heaven. And the kingdom of Jesus is better than the Roman Empire. Because the Roman Empire, there's a lot of great stuff about it, but there's also a lot of injustice and idolatry in the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire extends its territory mostly through through military and economic domination, mostly through coercive power. That's not how Jesus extends his kingdom. Jesus brought his kingdom into the world by pouring out his life in humility and service and love. And the disciples of Jesus, the community of Jesus, is a community of peacemakers, a community of servants. And Paul says, you have a new citizenship. Um, I'm going to put back up on the screen those two points I just mentioned. And and now I'm going to put verse 27 in the New Living Translation. I think this is actually the best translation of this verse that I can find into English. Paul says to his friends, Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner Worthy of the good news about Christ. Paul is saying to his friends, If you've trusted in Jesus, God forgave your sins, and and you are a citizen of heaven. And I want to talk to you right now. Say, friends, if you've trusted in Jesus, not only has God forgiven your sins, but he has changed your identity. And you are a citizen of heaven now. Um, some of the people watching this um, do not get to enjoy the rights and citizen, uh, the rights and privileges of citizenship in America. I agree for that. Uh, you guys know that I've been advocating for years for pathways to citizenship for so many of our beloved immigrant neighbors. But there's a reality. Some of us uh, who are watching this don't get to enjoy that in America. But Paul says, whether or not you enjoy the rights and privileges and powers of citizenship on earth, you do enjoy the rights and powers and privileges of citizenship in heaven. Okay? And that means a lot of things. It means, for one thing, you are a co-heir with Jesus of the new creation. When Jesus comes back, you're going to enjoy bliss. You're going to live in a perfect world in the presence of Christ in a resurrection body forever. That's what you have to look forward to. And nothing can separate you from the love of God since you're a citizen of heaven. But it also means now you have a responsibility and you actually have spiritual authority um, to fill the earth with the culture of heaven and to tell the good news of Jesus on the earth. Now, probably the most helpful thing I've ever read about what Paul is saying in Philippians here was actually written in this book. Um, This is a wonderful book. Everybody... I encourage you to buy it, read it. The book's called Strength to Love by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And at the beginning of this book, there's a sermon called Transformed Nonconformist. And he talks about our verse in Philippians 
I'm going to put the, the quote from Dr. King on the screen and read it to you. This is a challenging quote with some deep ideas in it. So I'm just going to read it through and then I'm going to try and unpack and summarize what Dr. King is saying. Here's what he says. Every true Christian is a citizen of two worlds, the world of time and the world of eternity. We are paradoxically in the world and yet not of the world. To the Philippian Christians, Paul wrote, We are a colony of heaven. They understood what he meant for their city of Philippi was a Roman colony. When Rome wished to Romanize a province, she established a small colony of people who lived by Roman law and Roman customs and who, though in another country, held fast to their Roman allegiance. This powerful, creative minority spread the gospel of Roman culture. Although the analogy is imperfect, the Roman settlers lived within a framework of injustice and exploitation, that is, colonialism, the apostle does point to the responsibility of Christians to imbue an unchristian world with the ideals of a higher and more noble order. Living in the colony of time, we are ultimately responsible to the empire of eternity. As Christians, we must never surrender our supreme loyalty to any time-bound custom or earth-bound idea, for at the heart of our universe is a higher reality, God and His kingdom of love, to which we must be conformed. These are powerful words. Let me try to really briefly summarize what I think Paul and Dr. King are saying. They're saying, uh, you live on the earth and you're responsible for the earth. We, we all do. We all live in the 21st century. We live in Oklahoma, in Oklahoma City or Norman, in the Oklahoma City metro. Um, some of you are watching this video on YouTube or on Facebook and you're in other places, but you are in some place and you are in some time and you're responsible for the place and time that you live. But your values and your lifestyle are not supposed to be characterized primarily by the cultural, historical reality of, of your time and place. Your values and your lifestyle are supposed to be determined by the fact that you're a citizen of heaven. You're a part of the eternal kingdom of Jesus. That gives you joy, that gives you security, that gives you authority, and that gives you a purpose. As Dr. King says, the culture of heaven now needs to be born witness. It needs to begin to fill the earth. So when we tell people about Jesus and when we humbly by the power of the Holy Spirit try to do good works of love and justice in our community, we're trying to extend the culture of heaven on earth even as we wait for Jesus to come back and heal the wounds of the world in a way that we never could. Um, there's lots of implications of this, um, but rather than me trying to summarize all that the Bible says about it, I just want to dive back into Philippians I think Paul tells us uh, four things that, um, that, that it means, four practical outworkings. What does it look like to let the gospel of Jesus go deep into our hearts and transform us so that we live as citizens of heaven and so that our lifestyle is worthy of the gospel? Um, open, open the word with me again to Philippians chapter 1. And I just want to read the, the whole little section there, verses 27 through 30. Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This is the Word of God. So I said a second ago, I think there's four things that we can see in this passage that answer for us the question, what does it look like to live a lifestyle that is transformed by the gospel, that is worthy of the gospel? The first thing that I think Paul is teaching us is that the gospel transforms us to live a lifestyle of loving unity with other Christians. Loving unity with other Christians. Look at the middle of verse 27. He says, Whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. Standing firm in one spirit. What does he mean? He means in your Christian community, there's a lot of different people from a lot of different backgrounds. Men and women, rich and poor, different ethnic groups, different cultural groups. And he says, but your relationship with Jesus and uh, the fact that you're a citizen of heaven is more important than all that other stuff. So that, Paul says, I long for you to show the world the beauty of the gospel by the way that you love one another. Be united with one another. Fight for relationships that burn through every barrier that alienates pe people from each other in the world. Listen, it is obvious that right now we have a world marked by all kinds of division. We're divided by politics. We're divided by economics. We're divided by ethnicity and skin color and language and culture. And that grieves the heart of God. And what God is saying is believe in Jesus. Receive the forgiveness of your sin. And then let the good news of Jesus transform you so that you treat one another in the way that Jesus treated you. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to say a lot more about this, so I'm not going to dwell on it too much right now. Um, but the key idea here is serve one another, love one another, forgive one another. And I really want to encourage the Christ Community Church family right now. If we're going to live this out, we need to be intentional and proactive about building relationships with people in our church and in our community who are different than us. We need to spend time sharing meals at each other's dinner tables. Not just the people who look like you, who have the same interests and the same age. Build relationships with people who are different than you. You may say that's hard. You may say that's uncomfortable. What I'm saying is this is a gift of the gospel of Christ. Show the beauty of the gospel by being intentional about this. The second thing that Paul says is related. It's about unity, but... He specifically goes on to talk about united action as ambassadors of Christ's kingdom. Look now at the last part of verse 27. Paul says, not only um, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit, but then he says, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So now he's not just talking about loving each other. He's talking about working together to do the, the work of gospel ministry in our communities. We need to first learn how to love each other, and then we need to learn how to work together in our communities. 
when he says striving side by side for the work of the gospel, he's saying we've got the good news that Jesus died for our sins and rose again and now he's the king. And we need to go tell everybody about that and we need to show people the reality of the kingdom in our actions. But listen, friends, you cannot accomplish the mission of God in the world or in your neighborhood by yourself. The Holy Spirit has distributed spiritual gifts in the body of Christ such that we all need each other. We cannot do this alone. Unified action is what has power. We have to learn how to set aside our own agendas, our own preferences, in order to work together to do the work of sharing the gospel of Jesus in our communities, making disciples in our communities, loving our neighbors, caring for the the poor and the widow and the fatherless and the vulnerable, um, to do the work of justice, correcting oppression in our communities. We've got to work together to do that. I thank God that we're a church um, in which I see so much grace, that so many of, of you are doing that faithfully, but I'm praying God give us more. Third thing that Paul says is, if we're going to live a life worthy of the gospel as citizens of heaven, we've got to learn how to live with courage in the face of evil and opposition. Now I'm getting this from verse 28. This is a powerful verse. Paul says, um, not only are you going to be united, but you're going to be not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. He's saying something deep here. And if I could just try to briefly summarize it, here's, here's what it is. If you get serious about following Jesus... Jesus is going to lead you into dark places to shine the light of His love. If you do that, you're going to find yourself caught in a battle between good and evil, spiritual warfare. And you're going to find people opposing you. You're going to find yourself facing risk. But Paul says, you need to be courageous. Don't be frightened by your opponents. He does not mean nothing bad is going to happen to you. After all, Paul is under house arrest. Paul just said... They might kill me soon. Okay? Christians um, can face suffering. We can face persecution. We, it might cost us a lot to follow Jesus. So when Paul says, don't be afraid, he doesn't mean nothing bad will happen to you. But what he means is this. God is with you. Jesus walks with you through the struggle with evil. If you suffer, uh, Christ is going to be there with you, strengthening you, sustaining you. But more importantly, Jesus is going to come back and set everything right. And when he does that, Jesus is going to honor those who trusted him. And Jesus is going to judge evil. So he's saying when people oppose you, when they oppose the gospel, when they oppose the goodness of God breaking into the world, he says, don't be overcome by evil. Be courageous. Overcome evil with good. Keep doing good with joy, even if it might cost you everything. And this is going to be a sign to those who are doing evil, when they see your courage, they're going to think there's something different happening here. And perhaps in the mercy of God, he will use your courage to call them to repentance because they see they really believe this stuff. There's something real and powerful in their lives. And, and those who are choosing evil will turn from evil to trust in Christ and receive his salvation. Now, this business of courage leads us to the fourth thing that Paul says. We're asking the question, what does a life transformed by the gospel look like? And we've said it looks like loving unity with other Christians. It looks like united action as ambassadors of Christ's kingdom. It looks like courage in the face of evil. And it looks like joyful suffering with Christ. 
joyful suffering with Christ. Listen to the very profound thing that Paul says in verses 29 through 30. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Wow. Paul is saying, Christians in Philippi, not only does God love you so much that he gave you the gift of believing in Jesus and thus being forgiven of your sins and reconciled to God, he says God has given you another gift. He's given you the gift of suffering for Jesus. And then in verse or in chapter 3, Paul's going to build on this and say, when we suffer for Jesus, we're really suffering with Jesus. We're sharing, we're fellowshipping in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. He gave his life for the world and he's inviting us into the joy of participating in his redemptive, self-giving love as we suffer in the world. Now that is a very countercultural thought. What does Paul mean? Well, all over the world today, there are Christians who um, are imprisoned and who are killed for being Christians. According to the International Bulletin for Missionary Research, which is the leading research journal on global Christianity, for a lot of decades, there has been an average of at least 100,000 Christians a year who are killed for their faith. Uh, these are people that the, wor- the world wasn't worthy of. I'm not worthy of them. I'm just so thankful that there have been so many courageous, faithful Christians who have paid the ultimate price of their life. Um, I want to honor that, but I also feel like today there's something stirring in my heart that I don't even fully know how to articulate. Um, So I'm asking right now for the help of the Holy Spirit, and I want to ask you to try and listen to God with me. When Paul talks about Christian suffering, he's talking about something that he makes clear elsewhere. Uh, This is not the experience of a, a small subset of the Christian community. Everybody who follows Jesus will suffer. Let me make this clear by pointing you to a verse in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Look at what Paul says so clearly here. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He does not say some Christians living in the Middle East will be persecuted or some Christians living in a communist regime will be persecuted. He says every real disciple of Jesus is going to face opposition. They're going to suffer for the gospel at some level. And there's a word in my heart that I just um, want to ask God's grace to communicate it. I want to say there is an idea that I have heard articulated a lot of times, which is the idea that we're so blessed in America that as Christians... We don't have to suffer for our faith. Other people elsewhere are persecuted, but here we've got the joy, the privilege, the freedom of not suffering in our place. Uh, Because after all, we live in a culture that gives us freedom and that supports our Christianity. That's what people say. That's what people think. And I just want to say that idea is wrong. It is not biblical. And it's not real. Over the last week, um, I had the privilege of sitting on Zoom calls with a lot of my dear friends, Christian sisters and brothers who are really godly African-American leaders 
in the Oklahoma City metro. And in every one of those calls, uh, these holy, humble saints were talking about their pain. They were talking about spiritual warfare. They were talking about struggle. And I felt unworthy but overjoyed to get to, in a little tiny way, listen, weep with those who weep, learn from these saints. Um, but I was just reflecting on, on this reality. If I look at my own Christian experience, look at the world, or just look at the Bible, what Paul just said to us in Second Timothy 3.12. If we are not suffering at all in our walk of discipleship, there's something unbiblical happening. There's something wrong. Um, because Jesus leads us into dark places of spiritual warfare in order to love our neighbors and to bear each other's burdens. And it always brings suffering. Um, and so I just feel like if we're not suffering in any way, if we're not experiencing that struggle or spiritual warfare, it means we're not being obedient. It means probably, among other things, we're not being faithful to the biblical call to do justice, to press into the struggle of oppression and pain in the world. It probably also means we're not being faithful to the biblical call to go enter into the pain of people and bear the burdens of our neighbors and love our neighbors as ourselves. As I look back on my own Christian lives, friends, I just feel like God has blessed me so much. He's blessed me so much. I've experienced so much joy and provision. But I also want to be honest with you. I don't want to have false advertising here. It was the year 2000 when Jesus started leading a clueless kid named John Mark, out into some apartment complexes uh, to share the gospel in, a, in my community in a new way um, that now for 20 years Jesus has been calling me to do that kind of ministry where I'm living in neighborhoods and apartment complexes and sharing the gospel and making disciples. And I've learned so much from my neighbors. I've been cared for so much by my neighbors. And I've made a lot of foolish mistakes and I've experienced a lot of the grace of God. I've seen God change people's lives and save people's souls. But I want to tell you the journey has been joyful. The journey has been good. I wouldn't trade it for the world, but it's involved a lot of suffering. It's involved a lot of emotional struggle and pain. It's involved uh, broken relationships. If you speak the truth about God's righteousness and justice, people are going to criticize you. You're going to experience broken relationships. In addition to our own struggle as frail human beings, if we really love people, then we suffer vicariously with other people who are hurting. The struggle is real. And I'm, I'm saying that to say I feel, like, um, I feel like I've received so much more joy in that journey of discipleship. I feel like I haven't made a sacrifice. Um, but I feel like there needs to be a call. Like Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Like Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. I just feel like God's saying to me and perhaps saying to all of us today, pick up your cross and follow Jesus. And here's a reality. In the weeks and months to come, in our community and in our world, and in the years to come, in our community and in our world, there's a lot of people um, who God wants to hear the gospel through you. God wants them to experience the healing love of Jesus through you. He's inviting you into that. And if you're going to experience that, you need to decide in advance, I'm going to let the gospel do a work in me such that I'm ready to joyfully sacrifice. I'm ready to joyfully suffer. I'm ready to inconvenience my, my schedule. I'm ready to do things that are not in my own self-interest to bless others. I'm ready to die to myself daily. 
I'm ready to maybe live in a place that is inconvenient. I'm ready to be criticized. I'm ready to be misunderstood and slandered. I'm ready to do all of that because I love Jesus. And I love people. And I want to follow Jesus wherever He leads. Now, as I'm thinking about this, I want to put a couple verses on the screen right now. Here's two phrases from the Bible that I couldn't get out of my mind as I was preparing to share with you. First John 4, 8, the Bible says, God is love. And in Hebrews 12, 29, the Bible says, God is a consuming fire. Now, when we look at those words, those phrases, I think sometimes there's a temptation to feel like those are saying two things that are totally opposed to each other. God is love. Sounds like it's talking about a very kind and gracious and merciful and forgiving God. And it is. And God is a consuming fire. Sounds like it's talking about a holy and just and righteous God, a God of wrath against evil and a God who should make us tremble. And it is. But these verses are not contradicting each other. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus freely, graciously offers us to be forgiven of our sins. Anybody who trusts Jesus right now, you can be forgiven. And if you trust Jesus, Jesus is going to lead you into the presence of the holy God and into the fire of his holy love. And that holy love transforms us. We can be transformed by the gospel. It might hurt. It might be painful. It might involve a lot of struggle. It might involve a lot of repentance. It might involve suffering. But what we're saying is not you have to do all these hard things so that God will accept you. We're saying God offers you free forgiveness and grace and love. And part of the gift of the gospel is He's inviting you deeper into the reality of His love, which will transform you. And if you will follow Jesus into the fire of God's holy love, mysteriously, God's going to transform you so that your life, your very life, will be a witness to the gospel. Now, as we wrap up our time today, I want to put some questions on the screen for you to ponder. As you're reflecting on this word today, I want you to ask yourself this question. How is Jesus inviting me deeper into the holy mystery of God's love? The good news of the gospel is that God wants to save you. He wants to bring you close to himself. And today he may be calling you deeper into his holy love in a way that's going to involve some change, some repentance, some transformation, some healing. How is Jesus inviting me deeper into the holy mystery of God's love? I pray the Holy Spirit will help you to ask yourself that question. Related question, how is Jesus inviting me deeper into deeper unity with my Christian family? How is Jesus inviting me into unified action with my church family as an ambassador of his kingdom? How is Jesus inviting me to let go of my fear? And how is Jesus inviting me into the joy of participating in his redemptive suffering? I don't know what the questions or what the answers are going to be for you for all of those questions. But I pray that as we reflect on these questions, the Holy Spirit is going to remind us of the mercy and love of great and grace of God. And Jesus is going to call us into deeper discipleship in a way that's going to heal us, that's going to transform us, and that's going to prepare us for something special he wants to do through us. Let me pray for you. Father in heaven, I pray for myself and for everybody who's watched this video. 
Help us by your Holy Spirit to hear your word. Don't let the enemy confuse us or distract us or condemn us. Help us to hear the gospel in a way that goes deep inside of us and sets us free. In Jesus' name, amen.